Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. God, there is no other. There is no other name, God, that can save us. There's no other name, not only that was able, but that was willing to come to this earth, God, in the midst of our brokenness and in the midst of our mess, and not only to join in it, but God, to go all the way to the cross, all the way to death itself to redeem us. God, the I Am who became the Jehovah, the Emmanuel God with us. We thank you, Jesus. We exist to lift that name high, God. We exist to give you the glory, the worship that you're worthy of. And we pray that would happen today in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Team, thank you. Singers, thank you. Can one, one more time we just thank them for leading us this morning. And thank you for being here on a blistering cold morning. This is, yes, Florida cold, I get it, but it is cold. I love seeing the earmuffs and the mittens coming out because it's something like 50 degrees. You know, the next time that we're together uh, will be that Christmas Eve service. We hope that you're in, uh, if you're in town, you're there. I do want to say, um, just kind of as, as an aside, if you are traveling, we know a lot of people travel around the holidays, uh, we will be streaming our Christmas Eve service, and so if you want to catch that with family and you're in North Carolina or the Bahamas or somewhere else and not here, uh, that opportunity will be there for you uh, Christmas Eve. But if you are in town, we hope that you'll help us fill this room with the worship of King Jesus, the one who came to save us. Uh, Today we are continuing our Christmas with us series and continuing to read again Luke chapter 2. You can follow along with me as we have done every week for the last four or five weeks. I want to read for us and with us Luke chapter 2 beginning at verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a great multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This morning we're going to hone in on these words from the text, Glory to God in the highest. You wouldn't be surprised to know that glory was not a uniquely Hebrew concept. In fact, uh, most historians would attach the word glory to the Roman Empire, the, the glory of Rome. It was all about warfare and conquest and victory over enemies. This glory of Rome was brought on by one that they called their divine savior, Caesar Augustus, empowered by their Roman gods to bring glory to Rome. But what I want to do this morning is look at what the Word of God says about glory in the one that is only worthy of glory, God himself, the I am. The Old Testament Hebrew word glory is the word kavod. It has the idea of, in in its first appearances, wealth, 
as when Jacob left his father-in-law Laban and took the glory with him, that was the, the flocks and the herds and the livestock. We see the same word, kavod, show up to describe the beauty uh, uh, with which Aaron and his sons were ordained as priests. It was the, the kavod that they wore. But something happens at the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt where most of the rest of the references to kavod, glory, in the Old Testament are directly connected to none other than the presence of God. And so it includes these ideas of wealth and beauty, but it also ushers in ideas like splendor, holiness, power. It was this word that Moses used in Exodus chapter 33 when he said, show me your glory. In other words, show me your presence, God. As we turn over to the New Testament or the New Covenant, we see the word glory, and it's primarily now in the Greek, it's the word doxa. It doesn't really uh, do much beyond re-establishing what the Old Testament idea is, the splendor, the holiness, but it does expand it just a little bit because it also in, in, uh, includes or invites the idea of the thing that we give to God, we give glory to God, doxa. You may know the word doxology. It's a, it's a hymn of worship to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's our, our giving glory to the one who is glorious. What I want to do this morning together for the next 25 or 30 minutes is answer a simple question. And the question is, what is the proper response to the revelation of God's glory? What is the proper response of the heart to the revelation of the glory of God? I've shared this before, but I'll share it again. Many years ago on a, on a retreat in Texas on a 10,000-acre ranch, I am not a hunter, but I was with people who were, and so I went and watched deer who were completely safe because they weren't going to be hit by me. And, and in that experience of, of the wonder and the nature of God, one night me and my friends were outside, and I happened to look up, and I noticed this kind of ring or this cloud that's like going from one side of the sky to the other. I said, man, what in the world is that? And one of the guys goes, well, that's the outer wisp of the Milky Way. I was like, <laughs> are you kidding me? Like, we don't get to see a lot of stars out here. Some of us that are in West Orange more so than those that are in downtown Orlando, but still, we, we don't see the glory of God in creation quite in the same way. And there was a physical reaction, like mouth open, head up, wow. It was just, it just kind of came. It wasn't like I was like, oh, I need to give God glory now. It was like the glory of God caused something to respond in me. Some of you have had a similar experience when you stood over the Grand Canyon or when you stood at the basin of the Amazon River or you watched the redwood trees in Northern California ascend from the ground and you go, wow, unbelievable. The first response to the glory of God is simply to recognize the presence of God within it. God has designed our natural world to reveal his glory. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God has designed our natural world to reveal his glory, but it is possible to see the beauty of creation and yet miss the creator. One of the most popular ways of describing the, the, the idea that God exists as evidenced by creation is what's known as the watchmaker illustration. Some of you would be familiar with this. 
Uh, I'm going to update this. I don't have it with me. The iPhone maker, <laughs> the 21st century kind of refurbishing. We know when we see the way that a watch works, or in our case, the way that an iPhone works with all of its technology and the apps, I can, I can transfer money from my savings account to my checking account, like in between services by pulling something out of my pocket. It's, it's unbelievable. And the idea is that when we see something that is intricately made, it causes our minds to go, there must have been a maker. Things like iPhones, things like watches, things like ice and trees and stars and rain, these don't happen unless someone is behind it creating it. And yet some refuse to see the presence of God within the glory of God. The late astrophysicist Stephen Hawking said the question is, is the way the universe began chosen by God for reasons we can't understand, or was it determined by laws of science? He says, I believe the second. If you like, you can call the laws of science God, but it would not be a personal God that you would meet and put questions to. Paul predicted this in Romans chapter 1, didn't he? He said, what can be known about God has become plain to them because God has shown it to them. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Let me do my own translation of that passage. They had eyes to see God's glory, but did not have the faith to believe it. They saw what was made, and they did not see behind it the maker, the one who is, who was, who is to come. A while back, I was listening to a sermon by John Piper. The sermon was titled, Five Reasons That Some Fall Away. And as he talked about loss of faith, or in our case, lack of faith, this is what he said. It is owing most deeply not to the mind's problems with history, science, logic, or ethics, but rather to the heart's overpowering desire for something that does not fit the Christian faith. We stumble over the cliff not because there is no light, but because we love the dark. Now, I'm not going to dismiss the fact that there are... Uh, challenging things about faith. There are logical questions to be answered, but the reality is that the lack or loss of faith is primarily driven not by intellectual issues, but by the wandering heart that wants to be its own God, to enjoy the glory of all that God is and yet not see the presence of God or acknowledge it within it. We love the dark. Romans 121 says their foolish hearts were darkened. Some would rather live in darkness than to acknowledge the existence of God, but that is only the first hurdle that you have to overcome. Because secondly, a proper response to the glory of God or the presence of God is to humble yourself before him. So first, we recognize the presence. This is not some, you know, wound up the clock and walked away. God is intimate with us. He's in the midst of us. He's present with us. And then we humble ourselves before him. The truth is, if the enemy cannot get you to disbelieve God, he will get you to compete with him. James tells us that even the demons believe God, and yet they shudder in fear because they refuse to bow in humble adoration of him. 
In fact, Satan himself recognizes who God is. Satan himself knows that all that we see that is in our creation, all that is good and beautiful, is the gift of God, but he has not humbled himself. In fact, Isaiah chapter 14, most theologians, most uh, academics would say this is kind of a, a prediction of or rather an embodiment of the satanic ideology against God. Isaiah 14, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Recognizing that there is a true presence behind the glory, but refusing to humble himself before it. By contrast, many of the people in Scripture who encountered God or who encountered his glory had the same reaction. They fell face down before him. That the Hebrew word for worship in the Old Testament is shakah. It literally just means to bow down or to fall face down in the presence of God. And again, I don't think these men and women were going, okay, God is here, I should bow. I think they were like, God is here, and boom, I'm on my face. A physical response of humility, of worship to the one who's worthy. How different our generation is, right? Because we're the selfie generation. We're, we're the ones who have our camera lens not pointed out at the world, but pointed in at ourselves, right? Look at me, look at me, post it, do it, all about me. And so we take ideas like self-love which is good, and we distort it not to be the kind of thing that recognizes its own value and dignity as one created in the image of God, but rather we say with Robert Morley that to fall in love with yourself is the first secret to happiness, as if it's all about me and my happiness. We take ideas like self-care, which is good and valuable and important, and we twist it not to be the kind of thing that seeks to maintain a healthy lifestyle spiritually, physically, and emotionally, but one that says with Ian La Vincent, when you give to others to the degree that you sacrifice yourself, you make the other person a thief. Friends, these ideas and these quotes and these memes are flying around our world, and we're like, oh, that sounds good, but can I ask you this? Does it sound anything like the way of Jesus? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Friends, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not prioritize his happiness over the needs of others. Jesus was not unwilling to sacrifice, even laying down his life for the good of others. Rather, he humbled himself and became obedient to death that God might be glorified and that you might be saved. He emptied himself. Now, I want to clarify real quickly so no one misses my point here. Jesus did practice self-care and he did it better than anyone else. Jesus did recognize who he was as the divine son of God. There was no diminishing of Jesus's person or purpose to satisfy others. That's not what we're talking about. But Jesus was a humble person. C.S. Lewis describes humility as not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself 
less. Self-care for Jesus meant getting away from the crowds and being with the Father where he could be reminded who he was, how valuable he was, how important his mission was. Not so that he could be self-exalted in that moment, but that he could come down from the mountain and again, as he did all the time, empty himself to glorify God and for the good of others. In other words, for Jesus, self-care was not the end. It was a means to the end. The glory of God was always his end. And so as you process and practice living a healthy lifestyle and balancing and and making sure that other people aren't, you know, toxicifying, I don't even know if that's a word, but you understand what I'm saying, like, don't lose the heart of Jesus. And don't lose the reward that Jesus got. Look at how Philippians chapter 2 continues. This is the great paradox of glory. Follow this. Therefore, What is the therefore? Therefore, because of Jesus emptying himself, the the kenosis, the the self-sacrificing, therefore God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now it's important that I say that this glorification of Jesus is for Jesus alone. So in other words, the reward for us is not that at our name, every knee bows, that's Jesus' name. But the principle, the principle applies for us as well. That in the humbling of ourselves here and now, there is exaltation at the proper time. Not that rivals Jesus, but this is how Peter said it in 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Some of you very simply just need to be reminded that this is not the proper time. You can't handle the weight of glory. That's why we see people be, be intoxicated with wealth and fame and power, and the next thing you know, they're dead by their own hand. We can't handle the weight of glory. What we can do is, like Jesus, empty ourselves, love people, love God, give ourselves to the mission to which he's called us, and at the proper time, we will receive our reward. God desires, though, not merely our humble service. This is where the beauty of the gospel really radiates. God desires not only our humble service, but also our intimate friendship. Do you remember that on the last night that Jesus was, was with his disciples, he said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. So this idea of humbling ourselves before God is a prerequisite, but it is not the end goal. Jesus says, in your humbling, I want not just your service or your attitude, I want you. And so the third proper response to the glory of God is to draw near to God. Now for me... <laughs> This feels a little counterintuitive. Anybody else? Like, how do we respond to God's glory? We draw near to it. No, I'm like, I would be like Isaiah, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people that are not good, to translate. Or like Peter, away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. That's a natural response. A supernatural response is that even as we recognize our unworthiness, even as we humble ourselves before God, we are in that process to be drawn into relationship with God, to be drawn near to Him. Every other religion in the world, 
emphasizes only the transcendence of their God. This is why the Romans, a few thousand years ago, looked up at the five visible planets and went Neptune, Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, right? These were their gods. Because in the Roman mind and in the mind of natural man, glory and gods is something that lives up there and out there. It's fixed. It's distant. It's unreachable. And so they called the planets after the names of their gods. Only in the good news, the gospel of Jesus, does the transcendent become imminent. God with us. This all began on the first Christmas night. It's remarkable to me that this angel's song, glory to God in the highest, is being proclaimed to those who are the lowest, the shepherds. God was not interested in in creating a barrier. I am glorious. Get away from me. But rather that through the revelation of his glory, we would draw near to his heart. The point is that the reason Jesus came near to us is that we might come near to him. This is what Hebrews 14 articulates when it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now this is very much connected to the same idea we spoke about a moment ago, which is humility. Because there is something called false humility, and then there's what is true humility. Here's what false humility does. It says, I am so small and insignificant that God must not ever want me. I and me, right? Oh, I'm so unworthy, I just can't, God could never, and and we're putting that lens or that spotlight on ourselves. It's false humility. True humility says this, the grace of God is so vast and so great and so good that it must be available even to people like me. This is what the shepherds were learning. How how bizarre would it be for the shepherds to leave the presence of the angels and go, oh man, no one would listen to me. You know, I'm I'm just a lowly shepherd. Like they weren't thinking about themselves. They're going, I can't believe what we just saw, what we just experienced. And look at where they went as a result. They went to Jesus. The glory of God led them to the person of Jesus, the baby in the manger. When I was in high school and I was first following after Jesus, and and I just remember that time of life, some of you have similar stories or testimonies. It was like, you're really high one day, you're really low, like a girl breaks up with you and you question the existence of God, you know, and then the next day, you're like in these worship experiences. This is just immaturity. This is just God patiently working out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? But I remember one of those highs, there was a a worship band and they were playing a song and and I don't even really remember the song or the band, but the line they kept repeating was the answer lies in the one who stands on high. And they just repeated that refrain over and over. The answer lies in the one who stands on high. And I remember in that moment as a 17 year old, just lifting my arms up and feeling like they weren't reaching high enough. And so I lifted them higher and then I was up on my tippy toes and I was like, as if I could reach God, but something in me desired to because the glory of God should produce a sense that I want to be with God. We draw near to him. Again, not thinking less of ourselves, 
simply thinking of ourselves less, thinking more about the goodness and the glory of our Creator. And after that, after recognizing the presence of God, after humbling ourselves before God, after drawing near to God, then we get to do this. This is the great privilege and responsibility of the gospel. We share the story of God. This is what experiences of glory naturally do. They make us want to talk about it. The vacation that you took and experienced the Grand Canyon or, or whatever it might be, you came back and you probably posted it on uh, Instagram uh, in between all your selfies, but you posted it on Instagram or you found a friend to tell the story to. Like, you weren't like, oh, I'm just going to keep that to myself. Glory demands that we share the goodness of the glory. Some of you know people like this. They're still living in the glory days of high school sports. I was going to indict my brother-in-law and myself in this, but we mostly just do it with each other, so I think it's allowed. I call it Uncle Rico syndrome, right? I throw that ball, I'll throw it over that mountain. Coach, coach would put me into that state championship, we'd won, no doubt. It's called Napoleon Dynamite, you can look it up later. We, we, we like to relive experiences of glory. It's very natural to do that. We, we don't want to keep glory to ourselves. Glory demands that we share in it. This is exactly what the shepherds do when they leave the presence of God, having recognized him there, having humbled themselves before him, then having gone to the manger to be near to Jesus. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 15. It says, when the angels went away from them, the shepherds, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And then this is what they did. They went in haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Who were they telling? Anyone who would listen <laughs> to some stinky, smelly shepherds. And what were they telling? It was not theology. They, they weren't quoting Isaiah. Jesus didn't appear to theologians and scribes and priests and Pharisees. Jesus came to shepherds because all they could do was share their experience. There was a time in Jesus' ministry when a, a man who was born blind, John chapter 9, Jesus touches him and he, and he heals him. And the Pharisees are really uh, freaked out about this. <laughs> Not just because of the power of that, but what it meant for them. Jesus was, was subtly dismantling the, the faux power structure that they had created upon their own shoulders. So they pull this guy aside and they say, hey, who is it that healed you? And he said, I don't know his name. He said, well, was he, at least tell us he was a sinner. He goes, I didn't even know if he was a sinner. The only thing I know is I was blind and now I see. See, if you don't know anything else, but Jesus has touched your life, Jesus has transformed you, tell. Amen. That is the story of the glory of God, and it's meant to be shared. Every story has three parts in its most basic form. The story of before the experience, I'll use an illustration that is not true of me. I want to make this very clear. <laughs> so I'm running late for, I, this really isn't true. You're, I'm not saying that sarcastically. This didn't happen. But just, just to, to get the idea, you're, you're running, I'll put you in it. You're running late on the 535. The light is yellow-ish, reddish. It's kind of in between. You got to get there. You go through. Somebody's on Lake Butler Drive. They think you're stopping for the red light. They pull out. Boom, collision. Okay. 
So before the experience, if you're telling this, you go, yeah, I was running late, I was on the 535, the light was turning yellow. That's before the experience. And then the experience, what happened? Well, I tried to make it, they tried to turn, collision, boom, that was the experience. That's why you're telling the story. You're not telling the story if that didn't happen. But that's what happened. Well, then what happened? Well, after the experience, after the collision, we exchanged pleasantries and uh, insurance cards. The police were called. Traffic was backed up to, you know, three miles down. And that's, that was after the event. It's very, very simple. What I'm getting at is this is not rocket science. Every story has a before, the experience, the experience, and after the experience. The shepherd story went the same way. We were on a hillside outside of Bethlehem. We were working the overnight shift of the worst job you could do. So the worst of the worst. And that's where we were. That was before the experience. And then here's what happened. Here's why we're telling the story. All of a sudden, an angel showed up. The glory of God was around it. And we got this incredible message. Wow, shepherds, what happened next? Then they tell after the experience. Well, then we went to this manger, this stable in Bethlehem. And we found just what the angel said. This baby, Jesus, was in a manger with his mom and his dad. The experience, before the experience rather, the experience and after. I say all that to tell you that you also have a story. And this is very simple. If you know Jesus, if you have given your life to Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, there was a time that that wasn't true. And you have the opportunity to tell people, hey, let me tell you what it was like before Jesus. They don't need all the gnarly details, but what they do need to know is, yeah, it was dark. There was addiction, or there was a broken relationship, or there was, there was anger in my heart. There was, there was a lack of freedom, a lack of peace. I had all of that just like maybe what you have. That was before the experience, but let me tell you about the experience. The moment, the day, the season that you encountered Jesus. Maybe that was a friend that shared the good news with you. Maybe that was a Sunday morning worship experience, or a youth camp, or a, a children's conference, or, or maybe you were just reading through the Gospels and Jesus revealed himself to you, and you gave your life to Christ. That's the experience. And then you have an after. Well, what changed? What happened then? Well, man, I started to find more freedom, more power over this addiction. I started to see relationships be restored. I started to have a sense I wasn't walking through the world alone. I had a sense that God was with me, that I had people to support me. There was a change. There was before the experience and after the experience. And all I'm saying to you this morning is share the story. Don't hold it in. Look for people. Pray for them first and then look for opportunities to share the story of God's glory manifest through Jesus in your life. Now what many of you are thinking as I share this is going, I don't always feel like the after Jesus looks much different than the before Jesus. Okay? And, and for some of you, you go, no, no, that's not true. I mean, it was a radical change. But you know what some of us do? We kind of like, like baby step our way, right? Sanctification, becoming like Jesus is a process. If nothing else, what you can say since you met Jesus is some of the stuff's still true. I still fight that sin. I'm still working through that bitterness. I still don't have all the things I've prayed for, but here's what's different. Every moment of the day, the overcoming power of Jesus is in my life. That's where faith comes in. Because we're going to be tempted to go, no, it can't be true because this is true. And the beauty is this. Your story is not like the presence that you have neatly wrapped under your tree with a bow on top. Your story 
like mine, is hard. Your story is messy. It is in process. And through your story, other people get to see that in their hard and messy and in process life, the power of Jesus can show up even in this, whatever this is. Right? God didn't like make us finished products. He didn't like take us to heaven, like clean us up. Okay, now go back to the earth. The shepherds still stank when they shared their story. Right? But it didn't keep them from telling of the glory and the goodness of God. So share the story of God in your life. This is what Paul so beautifully articulates in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. But, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Jesus is okay with earthen vessels. Jesus is okay with jars of clay that can crack and break and have holes in them. Because in our brokenness, lived out in the grace of God, humbled before him, drawing near to him, the glory of God resounds so that all the earth says with the angels, glory to God in the highest. There are only two possible responses to the revelation of God's glory. Ultimately, I've given you four, but really there's two. You can resist it or you can receive it. Not everyone who encountered Jesus went away happy because some of them resisted his work and his calling. But everyone who received it, everyone who received him, received salvation, received the joy of the Lord, received freedom and peace and transformation. You can, today and in this Christmas season, you can resist God's glory or think of it this way, God's presence, or you can humbly receive it and let it draw you near to him. And so I close with a simple question. What is the next right response for you? Maybe you've been kind of like on the fence. You're, you're, you're caught up in the intellect and the academic and you even enjoy knowing more than other people who, who believe in God and you're not there. You're, you're enlightened. And the challenge for you this Christmas season is to recognize the person and the presence of God in the world. Or maybe you need to humble yourself again before God. You've become maybe egotistical, maybe simply vain, or maybe just caught up in yourself, self-absorbed. And you need to humble yourself again before God. Or maybe it's for you to draw near to God. There's something in you that's been resistant. Maybe it's the idea that, no, I'm not worthy. God could never want me. And I'm telling you, that's an abomination to the gospel. God wants you in relationship with him. So draw near to him. Or maybe simply, as you do all of these things, you need to be reminded to share the story, tell the story of the glory of God in your life. What is your next right step. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, I thank you for a story that no person could have come up with. I know because all the other religions look a lot the same. They have the same ideals, the same uh, images of a far and distant God that we have to perform for and if we do enough good and all of that and in the gospel, the mystery of the heart of God what we could never do for ourselves, you did by sending your son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Not simply to remain a baby in a manger, but become a man 
on a cross who died in our place that we might draw near to you in faith. God, let no one leave this morning without drawing near. Maybe for the first time. God, maybe for the 10,000th time. Let us, let our hearts draw near to your goodness and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.